This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. And the Christian witness is being so badly damaged by Christians, including people of, of good faith, who were engaged in politics and culture in a way that's doing enormous harm. And, and we've got to figure out, as Christians, as a community, as, as members of churches, what do we have to do to get this right? It can be done, but it's going to take real work, real effort. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, are we all dumber for listening to the presidential debates last night? We'll talk about PEPFAR and the future of the battle against AIDS around the globe, and we'll also talk about new data about growth of the Hispanic church in the United States. Then we'll end with CT's Daniel Silliman stopping by to tell us again what's weird. Joining me for these conversations are Nicole Martin, Emily Bells, Peter Weiner, Enid Almazar, and Scott McConnell. You won't want to miss it, so stay with us. All right, so we're recording on Thursday. Last night was the Republican presidential debate at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. Donald Trump, who, depending on the poll, is leading anywhere between the low 30s to the high 40s, he was not in attendance. So seven other GOP hopefuls were there to duke it out for second place. And it was quite the spectacle. Joining me to talk about what took place are Nicole Martin from CT. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks, Mike. And Peter Weiner, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. Peter Weiner, welcome to The Bulletin. Thanks a lot. Great to be with both of you. It seems like the consensus that I'm seeing this morning and hearing this morning was that last night was something of kind of a goat rodeo, right? I guess I'd love to ask you, Peter, as someone who served in a presidential administration, you've been watching these things very closely for a long time. I can't help but feel like what we're seeing is one of many downstream effects of the coarsening of our politics since 2016. At times, the exchange was very petty, but also like there was this telling moment at the end of the debate where the moderator said, hey, we want you to write down one name and vote someone off the island, like we were watching a game show. And so I'm just wondering, like, from where you sit, how do you see these things change? Are we just experiencing them as more coarse, or are they much more coarse? Is it different than it was 15 years ago? Yeah, it's a good question. I think some of both. I wasn't struck yesterday so much by the coarseness of the debate. I was more struck by the chaotic nature of it. It was at times like a like an elementary school food fight. I mean, they were, people were crosstalk. You couldn't hear what was being said by any of the parties. They were interrupting each other. The things that were said about each other really didn't cross the lines of normal politics in my experience. I put most of the responsibility, quite frankly, on the moderators because they lost control of the debate. Dana Perino, from time to time, made efforts somewhat successful to regain control, but then it was lost again. I do think that what candidates have figured out is if they want more airtime, they just interrupt and they mm -hmm. try and shoehorn their way in. That's something that's a little bit different than it's been in the past. That's a tactical difference. But look, American politics is in a really bad shape right now. And I think that that debate last night was a manifestation of, of some of that. But it can get worse. And I imagine if Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party and he debates Joe Biden, it will get worse. 
I came away with so many questions from last night's debate. First of all, it was very clear from the first round of debates that the issues affecting the voters really weren't talked about that much. You know, for example, it was clear from the first debates that Republican women in particular were looking for conversations around gun control. They were looking for conversations around health care subsidies and income and the economy. And they were looking for conversations around abortion. And none of that was touched in the first debate. It seemed like this time, at least the questions were asked. But it didn't seem like anyone was answering any of the questions directly. It just seemed like the questions asked were more relevant this time, but the answers were just a set of talking points of what people wanted to say with free airtime. If women really care about gun control, abortion, and the economy, why do you think no one really touched on that at all. Why do you think that they never even addressed it? Even when they considered the questions directly, they seem to kind of float past all of the things that really strike the heart of the American voter. I'll say for the Republican Party today, it's more radicalized than it's ever been in my lifetime. And so I think what they were trying to do is answer the question they wanted to answer, not the question that they were necessarily asked. And when the questions they want to answer is really framed and oriented toward a Donald Trump, Trumpist, MAGA party. Yeah. And that party doesn't yeah. share the concerns of gun violence. Well, they may well share the concerns of gun violence, but in terms of what a lot of Americans would say are common sense gun restrictions, that just doesn't have resonance. And it's really even beyond that, which is if you say these quote unquote wrong thing, and there are a lot of sort of heretic hunters that are out there. You know, you can blow up your campaign. So I think they were trying to script their answers to what they think would appeal to the base. And I think they probably have a pretty good sense of what the base wants. It's not what I want, but of course, I'm not going to be voting in, in a Republican primary either. Obviously, Trump has shifted the values of the party. And What's interesting to me in watching all of this is how, with occasional exceptions, and we'll talk about one of them in a minute regarding abortion, it seems like across the board, the candidates are trying to kind of calibrate themselves to fit the Trump voter as opposed to set themselves up as an alternative. And I suppose what that communicates is they've all taken it as a foregone conclusion that this is Trump's party, not only in the sense that he's the guy that they're all rallying around, but actually the values that he espouses are the values of the mm. party anymore. I still feel a little conflicted about that, a little trepidation about that, because I'm just not convinced that most people who were conservatives 10 years ago have abandoned everything they once believed about things like budgets and spending, the stuff that no one talks about anymore that are sort of considered these sort of dinosaur values of a bygone era. I think people have consistently underestimated the imprint that Donald Trump has had on the Republican Party. I think it's at least comparable to and probably more significant than the imprint that Ronald Reagan had on the Republican Party. Then I think you have to disaggregate how you're thinking about the categories. There's a category of policy, and let's call it broadly political philosophy. And then there's the category of sensibilities, dispositions, values. On the former, I think if you wanted to find out the intellectual progenitor of Trumpism, you'd have to look at Pat Buchanan in 1992 when he challenged George H.W. Bush. 
That platform that Buchanan ran on is essentially what what Trump embraced. What are the elements of it? You could see it in the debate about Ukraine and America's role in the world. So under Ronald Reagan, the Republican Party was an international party, global leadership, strong national defense, values, morality at the center of foreign policy. That's completely flipped. So now Republicans are much more likely to be sympathetic to Russia than Ukraine, and they're threatening to cut off aid to Ukraine. That never would have happened under Ronald Reagan. Then you look at immigration. There was a clip that was played last night. Ronald Reagan signed a law giving amnesty to 3 million illegal immigrants. And if you go back and watch the debates in the 1980s, like the primary between George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, they're sort of falling all over each other to show sympathy and compassion for illegal immigrants. That's obviously very much changed. And then protectionism. The Republican Party used to be a free trade party, and now it's a protectionist party. It doesn't mean that all things have been jettisoned. It's still a pro-life party, which it has been consistently since Reagan. And the budget and deficit. But honestly, Republicans talk that game. They never walk that game. So the, the deficit and the debt exploded under Trump. So it is a populist party. It's not a conservative party. I think that's very important for listeners to mm -hmm. understand. And populism and conservatism are not the same thing. And in many respects, they're antithetical to one another. But beyond that, and I think more significant than that, more fundamental than that, is the disposition and the temperament of the party. And there, I think it is Donald Trump's DNA. And you can see many Trumps all over the Republican Party, in the Senate, in the House, state legislators, and others. And that is an attitude of aggression, I would say cruelty, the embrace of conspiracy theories. And now, I mean, it's this is descriptive. I'm not even condemning it, though I, I certainly would condemn it. But the attempt to intimidate jurors and judges, sending out tweets essentially hinting that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff committed treason and should die. I mean, that is now the coin of the realm. And you tell me if you can name five elected Republicans who speak out against that. I don't think he can. Chris Christie's not elected. He's obviously been critical of it. Liz Cheney spoke up with, I think, a lot of courage. What happened to her? She was targeted in the primary. She was defeated. Adam Kinzinger, the same thing. So it is a party that has embraced Donald Trump's personality. Now, a lot of people, if you talk to Republicans privately who are elected or influential in the Republican Party, they're uneasy about it. But honestly, they don't have the courage or the willingness to speak out against it because the base has been radicalized. This is what they want. This energizes them psychologically and emotionally. They think they're in an existential struggle and they think Donald Trump will bring a gun to a cultural knife fight. And that's what they want. It was remarkable to me how little they spoke of the handful of things that have happened this week between the comments about Millie the judgment in a New York civil court that essentially sets the Trump organization on the course of having to close business in New York City and sell off its assets. Those issues weren't really even presented to the nominees to comment on. And so it's this strange thing where, again, it's this race for second place where they don't even want to acknowledge, with the exception of Christie bringing it up a couple of times and then a, and it's some interesting comments by DeSantis, they don't even want to acknowledge the elephant in the room and that they're all far from the finish line of being anywhere close to confronting this guy. 
Yeah, I think in terms of, of last night, there were a couple things going on. Number one, Fox was hosting the debate. So Fox is not going to focus on stuff that makes their listenership, their viewership uncomfortable. And raising issues of the moral transgressions, the legal transgressions of Donald Trump doesn't play well, and they know it. So they didn't frame the debate that way. But I think for the candidates, I mean, they're in a, they're in a difficult spot. They're losing to Trump, as you said, in national polls by roughly 40 points. So if the number two person is down by 40 points, you've got to figure out how to take the front runner down. But if a critique or criticism of the front runner, especially in the area where he's most vulnerable, which is on the morality, the ethics, the illegality, if that turns out to be dynamite to your campaign, it'll just blow up in your face. That is that the, the attitude, the outlook of the base is such that they say, you cannot go after him. You cannot criticize him. If you do, you've gone over to the enemy's side and you're a traitor to our cause and we'll make you pay. So they're hamstrung. They can't go after Trump in a way that you would normally see in a primary situation. And yet if they don't go after him, what's the rationale for your candidacy? Why should you be the nominee rather than than him? So I, I sympathize with the problem they, they face, but they, they were contributors to this problem. They created, in a sense, this monster, and they figured out, wow, there's no off switch to it. It doesn't seem that anyone's going to get close to being the front runner, at least where Donald Trump is. So what do we anticipate will be the fallout from this? You know, it's impossible to tell. If you removed the indictments and the trials, I think it'd be pretty straightforward what's, what's going to happen. I mean, no f- person in history of modern politics has had a lead that Donald Trump has had and lost it or anything close to it. People go back and they say, well, there was President Giuliani and you know so forth. Uh, Rudy Giuliani in 2008 never had a 40-point lead among his rivals. And in addition, you've now had two debates. We're moving into October, and there's just no movement. There's no sign either in the head-to-head matchups or in the underlying polling data about attitudes of Republican voters that shows that Trump is in any danger at all, even after four indictments. The one potential wild card here, and I don't think it's going to matter, I don't think it's going to change the outcome, are the trials. If he were convicted, would that change with the calculus of Republican voters? I don't think so. I think what we've seen so far is that it's a badge of honor. The indictments helped Donald Trump's approval rating, not hurt it. And so many Republican primary voters have simply gotten themselves into a mindset that says, these indictments are illegitimate because they're illegitimate. They don't really care about the evidence. They've just convinced themselves that he's being persecuted by the deep state. So look, absent some kind of lightning strike that we're not anticipating, he's going to be the nominee. Could be a health intervention or something like that that, that, that may alter it. But, but absent that, I don't see things changing. And then, of course, you would have a situation in which presumably Biden and Trump would be the two candidates again. And it wasn't a pretty campaign in 2020. It, it'll be uglier this time around. I did think there was one moment last night that surprised me a little bit, which was when DeSantis kind of came at Trump on abortion. He said this the other day in an interview, essentially blamed pro-lifers for a lot of the losses in the midterms. And DeSantis said, I reject this idea that pro-lifers are to blame for midterm defeats. 
He's had a lot to say about that, meaning Trump. He should be here explaining his comments to try and say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. I want him to look in the eyes and tell people who've been fighting this fight for a long time. And he went on to say that you know Republicans shouldn't be too scared to stand up for what they believe in. I think we should hold Democrats accountable for their extremism, including abortion all the way up to the moment of birth. This is the one issue that, in my lifetime, this is the issue that galvanized Republicans. They galvanized evangelicals in particular. Mm-hmm. And kind of locked evangelicals to the Republican Party. And so it's fascinating to me to see Trump move away from that. And the support doesn't seem to be softening amongst his own crowd just yet. It would seem that this would be a vulnerability based on history. But then again, it would also seem based on history, none of the rules apply to Donald Trump. (laughs) So I'm curious your thoughts on that, Peter. Yeah, uh, several things about it. I think he has a slight vulnerability on that issue, but he's insulated because his appointments overturned Roe v. Wade. And so in the minds of pro-life voters, that was a huge achievement. It's it's been the top priority for the pro-life movement for more than half a century. And because of his Supreme Court nominees and and the people who took to the court, it was overturned. So he's got that working in his favor. I'd say a couple of other things that I think are, are relevant to this. I think for the most part, the rules don't apply like they, that they normally did. Donald Trump has changed voters more than voters have changed Trump. And let me give you one illustration. When I was a member of the Republican Party, which I was for most of my life, I worked in three Republican administrations at George W. Bush White House. Morality was a central component of political leadership. I remember very well Bill Clinton era and the scandal with Monica Lewinsky. And you had a lot of people, particularly evangelical Christians, who said it doesn't matter how well the economy is doing. It doesn't matter if we're not in wars. These people are models to our children. They set the moral tenor of our country. They would quote the Bible verses that talked about the importance of morality and integrity in leaders, particularly political leaders. And they said if Bill Clinton had an affair with an intern, that's a disqualifier. You don't really need to go beyond that. And they hit him with a figurative two by four every single day on morality. All right, now we get Donald Trump, who whose corruptions, I would argue, are borderless, and in many respects makes Bill Clinton look like a Boy Scout. And they've jettisoned those deep convictions. And I think they were deep convictions. I think what they didn't understand at the time, they thought that they were making judgments based on their faith and the merits of the issue itself. Think really what happened, and I think all of us struggle with this, is that they adopted an ideological frame, and they pick and chose the issues that they wanted to care about and speak out about on whether it helped their side or hurt their side. And it turned out that morality was, was a great way to go after Democrats and Bill Clinton. But morality was not such a great weapon when it came to Donald Trump. And so if you look at the polling data, no group, has flipped on the centrality of morality in political leaders nearly as much as white evangelical Christians. So, you know, the same thing can happen with with abortion. Uh, Trump is not going to go pro-choice, even though we know personally he's pro-choice, and he said so any number of times before he got the nomination. But he's not going to advocate policies that are particularly pro-choice. He may be on the more quote-unquote liberal side when it comes to 15 weeks versus six weeks. But I just don't think you can think about Donald Trump in the same way that you have for other candidates. The last thing I'll say is, even if he has a vulnerability on this issue, I think the 
important thing to understand is there's no real challenger that's risen up for him. The most important political story, I would say, of this year is that Ron DeSantis, who some people thought would challenge him, has lost tremendous support. And so Trump's gap with DeSantis is much larger now than it was in January of this year. I think Ron DeSantis has shown himself to be a mediocre to terrible candidate. Donors are leaving him, and there's nobody that's really risen up. So if you've got a 40, 43-point lead in the national polls, and the rest of the crowd is sort of at 13%, 11%, 9%, no one seems to be getting traction, it's not clear to me how, how this plays out in a way that anybody wins other than Donald Trump. It would be different if Trump had a significant lead, but Nikki Haley was at 27% and rising. That would be a different dynamic, but that's not what's happening. It's really the opposite. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Peter, thanks for joining us for this conversation, and we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So back in 2003, the George W. Bush administration began what's called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, referred to often as PEPFAR in short. And over the span of the last couple of decades, more than 25 million lives have been saved by this program in 50 countries. More than 20 million men, women, and children are receiving antiviral treatment because of the program. It's an incredible program. Ironically, one of the very first episodes of The Bulletin that we hosted, we hosted with Bono, who was a big advocate of this program, a big partner for it, and talked about the critical role that evangelicals played in helping to advance the idea and get support behind it. So this program has been in place for about 20 years now, and the deadline for reauthorization is this Saturday. Joining me for a conversation about PEPFAR are Peter Weiner and CT's Emily Bells. Emily's been reporting on the status of the program and the jeopardy that the program is in right now. Emily, could you kind of tell us what's been going on with PEPFAR? Where do things stand with reauthorizing the program this year? Sure, yeah. So I think because PEPFAR is 20 years old, it's easy to forget how bad things were when it started. I mean, Botswana, for example, had 40% of its adults were infected with HIV, so this was really a catastrophe, and PEPFAR stopped the catastrophe. As you said, saved 25 million lives. But I think that's part, because it's 20 years old, that's part of why we're having a controversy right now, that it feels less like an emergency than it used to. But the issue is that PEPFAR needs to be reauthorized every five years. Unexpectedly, U.S. pro-life groups have lined up against that reauthorization, 
And their argument is that the Biden administration has turned PEPFAR into a slush fund for abortion. And that is factually not true. There is several U.S. measures in the law that prevent funding or advocacy for abortion in PEPFAR. But there's kind of a more nuanced reason for why these pro-life groups are against it right now. But it, it is something that Africans are surprised by, African Christians who I've interviewed. They're baffled that this program that has been such a bipartisan success is now being attacked by pro-lifers who, you know, African Christians who are involved in this program would consider themselves pro-life and I think are just confused about what's happening in D.C. right now. Peter, could you talk to us a little bit about your connection to this program? You wrote a great piece for The Atlantic talking about the current controversy. Maybe give us a little bit of your own personal connection to it and background with it. Sure. I was in the Bush White House from 2001 to 2007, and PEPFAR was announced in the 2003 State of the Union by President Bush. The overall funding for that program was $500 million at that time, and the president announced the initiative for $15 billion, which was by far the largest amount dedicated to a single disease in, in history. And I would say that the real angels of PEPFAR in the Bush administration, President Bush himself, Mike Gerson, a former chief speechwriter, Josh Bolton, who was deputy chief of staff, and Kristen Silverberg, his assistant, Mark Dybul, who was a brilliant researcher at the National Institutes of Health, a fellow named Gary Edson, Tony Fauci at NIH, Bono, you mentioned, he wasn't in the administration, but he was a very helpful and significant figure and knowledgeable, too, on these issues. There was resistance within the administration for a couple of reasons. One was, Emily had referred to Botswana, that there had been a much smaller effort several years earlier that really didn't work very well. So there was questions of whether the program would work, whether the infrastructure was in place in Africa, that that much money going into the system would actually make a difference. And then there was a cost, and there was no large real constituency in the country. Fortunately, some groups, including evangelical groups, lined up for it once President Bush and the administration advocated for it. But it was one of the great and humane programs uh, in American history, and its record is astounding, not just in the life say, but in the sheer efficiency of the program. And so it was, I would say, it's, it's the signature initiative of the Bush presidency as you mentioned, it saved 25 million lives. And a lot of other really remarkable things have happened with orphans and healthcare. So it's been one of the really hopeful and positive things that government has done. And so to see people turn on it, especially groups that are pro-life, claim to be pro-life, to turn and try and undermine one of the most successful, humane, pro-life programs in human history is disturbing and slightly Orwellian. Talk to me about the nature of the opposition. So when people are saying this is a slush fund for abortions, what's the source of that critique in particular? Because you can imagine pro-life listeners going, well, they're saying it is the slush fund for abortions and you're saying it's saving lives. It's a pro-life initiative. What's the nature of that critique? So the kind of backstory, I think, of why this is happening is that Pro-life groups have for decades been concerned about international NGOs imposing abortion on pro-life nations in Africa. So that's some context. But I think that the fundamental 
thing here is that the word I hear from Congressman Chris Smith, who's led the opposition to this reauthorization, who's a pro-life Catholic and all the pro-life organizations is the word fungibility. So they think that because PEPFAR funding is going to NGOs that also do abortions, that empowers them to do more abortions. So I think the technicalities of how PEPFAR work are really important. There's so many mechanisms and structures in place that make the grants through PEPFAR very strictly overseen. It's more strict than most foreign aid. There's a lot of reporting requirements that were built into the law when it was created. So people know where the money is. They know what it's doing. And it's just not being run like some of these other programs that pro-life organizations have been concerned about over the years. The Heritage Foundation put out a very flawed study earlier this year making claims that were simply not true, not accurate and the pro-life community seemed to rally around them. I, I do think that these claims that are being made by the pro-life groups, they're just ignorant of how the program works. I mean, Emily was right. For one thing, there's enormous oversight for PEPFAR. But beyond that, NGOs, the money that they get is grants, and it's very strictly monitored, and there's not a fungibility argument. And that's actually not the case, ironically enough, with faith-based groups, where the money kind of goes into a pot and there's much more latitude, much more flexibility on how you use the money. So if you talk to somebody like Mark Diebold, I quote Mark in, in my piece, he says that these claims simply are being done by people who don't understand operationally how the program works. And that's true with the people. I think Emily, in one of her important pieces in CT, quoted individuals who said, the people on the ground in the field tell you that this isn't true. This isn't happening. It's not how the program works. And beyond that, and again, Emily said this earlier, is that most of these African countries are very conservative on abortion. If PEPFAR funding was being used to promote abortion in any way, they'd be screaming from the rooftops. So it's at best, I think, if you wanted to be most generous in your interpretation of what's going on, it's people are ignorant of how the program started. A bad study was published. And then this took place in a larger context, a culture war context, in which increasingly, I would say, science and medicine are being sucked into culture war maw. And everything has to be politicized. Everything has to be a battle. And for all of PEPFAR's history until now, it's been blessedly freed of that. The other thing I'll say is that there's nothing that's different about how PEPFAR operates now that has been the case for the 20 years of its history. So this is an effort to undermine and jeopardize a program where the evidence is wrong and the premises are wrong. And this is a kind of mistake that is just not an error, but it mm -hmm. can be a lethal error. Yeah, I can't help but think as well, along with the concerns you mentioned, you also have this moment where, with a Democrat in the White House, Republicans are sort of watching the budget in ways that they didn't during the Trump years. And But you also have this sort of spirit of a very protectionist spirit, America first spirit, that I'm curious, do either of you see that attitude informing the rhetoric or the argument against continuing to fund PEPFAR? Well, I would say it, at the very least that Africans were not consulted or do not feel that they were consulted before the U.S. pro-life groups took this strategy forward legislatively. So at the least, it's coming from a very U.S.-centric point of view. 
Yeah, I'd add to that, which is the dispositions and sensibilities of the American right has, has changed. And there is now informing a lot of the groups the kind of isolationist tendency. You hear it all the time. You see it manifest in, in one way in the Ukraine war, which is there are Americans suffering. Why should we care about what's happening in Ukraine? But the kind of attitude to which a lot of the evangelical movement had 20 years ago, which was to be healers and to show generosity and compassion for the stranger and for the people that are suffering, including people who live in foreign countries, that just is different now. And a lot of these pro-life groups are part of the American right. I spoke to one person who asked for anonymity so he could speak candidly to me. He's a very strong pro-life figure involved in the strategies. And he said that the abortion politics post-Dobbs decision, that is the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is a factor in this too, that people on pro-life groups can't let other groups or individuals get to their right. And they can't be seen as weak, quote unquote, weak on, on this issue. But again, reality matters. And to be on the side of PETFAR is not to be on the side of the pro-choice movement. And so this is, this is troubling, but it's an, another piece in the larger puzzle of what's happening in American politics and American culture that I think is so disquieting. So what happens if the authorization fails and the program isn't funded? What happens? So the program has appropriations for another year. It's kind of structured to be one year behind in terms of disbursement. So at least the funding will be okay for a year. But reauthorization tells African nations that the U.S. is supporting this program and it's going to continue, which is a really big deal for health infrastructure. You can't just willy-nilly start and stop things. 20 million people are on these drugs that have to be taken continuously until we find an HIV cure. So those drugs are primarily what PEPFAR is paying for. And that is the funding that is going to be more of a political football if reauthorization fails. America has been the leader of the global AIDS initiative, PEPFAR. And if the signal is sent that its support for that program is weakening, which obviously it would be if it went from a five-year reauthorization to the one year, then other countries that have contributed to this effort are going to pull back as well. And as she said, because of the nature of global health programs, you need more than a year. You need several years of lead time to try and plan accordingly with logistics and all the rest. So the program won't end if the reauthorization doesn't go forward, but it'll be weakened. And it could be that this is just the, the tip of the spear and that after next year, if this debate continues, then there may be efforts to actually roll back PEPFAR, which, which would be even worse and more discouraging. So then for the average Christian, the average listener, what can they do? Is there anything that can be done to call your senator, call your representative? Is it kind of a classic make your voice heard moment for those who are concerned about this? Well, as a reporter, I can't advocate for you to call your congressperson, but I will say that the leaders of all the African Christian health associations, which are the representatives of Christian healthcare in the continent, have been pushing Congress to reauthorize this for five years. Those are the people who know what's happening on the ground. Those are the people who have their neighbors' lives invested in this program and so their voices, I think, should be amplified because they're the experts. 
Yeah. At this point, in terms of what individual Christians can do, there's not a lot because we're talking now of literally a matter of days, almost hours. We're talking about uh, the expiration at midnight on Saturday. So there's no real way to to pressure. It's really House Republicans that that we're talking about. There are people who are working behind the scenes even now to try and get a so-called clean reauthorization done. So, you know, hope and praying that that comes through and that 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 comes to fruition is a possibility. I think this is part of a larger long-term struggle and challenge, and that is for Christians to get involved in politics and culture in a way that reflects the heart and the ethics and the values of Jesus, to be really followers of Jesus, and to take to heart what his teachings mean. Look, there's always been a tension, and one ought to be modest about trying to connect the dots between ethics and a Christian ethic and particular public policies, because honorable people disagree And there are all sorts of caveats and qualifiers that go into programs, and life is messy and government is messy. That being said, I do think that if Christians of good conscience, if they remove themselves from the ideology and the political back and forth, were to put at the top of the list a program, PEPFAR would be awfully, awfully high on the list of programs to support. And the last thing I'll say is I think what's happened in a lot of instances, is that unwittingly for for a lot of Christians, faith has become subordinate to ideology, to politics, and to partisanship. And Christians proof text the Bible to support what their pre-existing political ideology has. And this is a much longer conversation. What we have to do is we have to turn that around. And as best we can, as imperfect people, we have to have as our starting point what the biblical ethic is and then try and build things around that. It's a long story of what happened and how we've lost that distinctiveness, but it makes a world of difference, not just to individual lives around the world and in this country, but to the Christian witness itself. And the Christian witness is being so badly damaged by Christians, including people of of good faith, who were engaged in politics and culture in a way that's doing enormous harm. And, and we've got to figure out as Christians, as a community, as, as members of churches, what do we have to do to get this right? It can be done, but it's going to take real work, real effort. All right. Well, we will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Welcome back. We are very excited to have a conversation about this amazing growth that's happening in the Hispanic Church in America. I have with me today our two guests, Scott McConnell and Enid Almanzar. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thanks so much. 
Well, both of you bring such great vantage points to this conversation. Reverend Enid is a pastor and leader and chairwoman of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. We are very, very excited to get some on-the-ground perspective from you. And Scott, as a researcher at Lifeway, you've got over 25 years of research in various studies around the church, and specifically for the past 15 years, leading Lifeway's national polling that measures the views of Americans. Americans. So I'm really excited to hear from both of you. What do you see at the highest level? What do you see God doing in the lifespan of the Hispanic church? First of all, the most noticeable thing is the growth that is happening. As we look at Hispanic American churches and congregations, more than half of them were started in the year 2000 or later. So this is a growing number of churches, a growing number of congregations across the country to gather Hispanics and other ethnicities in multi-ethnic churches, but the growth is very noticeable. I don't know of another demographic that we could look at that would show that kind of growth. And even as we approach pastors of Hispanic churches, almost half of them indicate they've had at least 10 new commitments to Christ in the past year. And when we're doing surveys of other Protestant churches, we're just not seeing numbers anywhere near that. And so some of those are are their children coming to Christ, and and some of those are conversions they're seeing in their community. But those are are very exciting things that we see across Hispanic churches in the United States. It seems like that's an important narrative alongside a narrative of evangelical churches declining and of attendance declining in the U.S. Here we have this really beautiful story of growth. Enid, how are you seeing this from your vantage point, even on a regular Sunday in your church? We are a vibrant church, as Scott mentioned, a growing church, and one that is younger than what we would typically see in the normal American congregation. And so that presents some opportunity for us, again, to redefine the faith narrative in the U.S. and really bring up a new generation of believers. But also it's messy work because you're talking about not a monolithic block of persons, but a very diverse Mm -hmm. linguistically, ethnically, culturally, and even within the generations. And so it is a beautiful, messy work that God is doing, but really for his glory, because again, even through the messiness, we're seeing this commitment to continue to share God's word and grow in faith in ways that we're not seeing in other aspects of the U.S. population. The diversity of the Hispanic church strikes me as something that's very unique. And Scott, I think some of your research drew that out as well. We're not just talking about racial diversity. We're also talking about diversity in terms of national and global. We're talking about generational diversity, language diversity. What has your research shown as some of the unique attributes of Hispanic church growth so far? Some of the diversity is seen in their roots, the countries that their families have come from through the years. Almost half of the attendees or the largest group within a Hispanic congregation come from Mexico, but the other half are spread out from Central America, the Caribbean, South America, and Spain. And so there can be a lot of diversity just as you step into one church that may have a lot of Guatemalans, another church that has a lot of Mexican roots, another church Caribbean, and there can be a very different feel in those churches just because of that background, whether that's recent or many years ago that their roots were from those countries. And and that leads to, to another point of diversity is in some communities, the Hispanic church has been there for 100 years. 
And so we're looking at fourth, fifth generation of Latinos in that congregation. We step into another church and it's almost all first generation immigrants. And so a lot of diversity within congregations that come out just on those couple points, as well as some churches that are intentionally multi-ethnic. So they're reaching beyond just Mm -hmm. Hispanic Mm -hmm. Americans. And so there's a lot of diversity when we start to talk about Hispanic churches. That's a good point, because when we think of the traditional model of a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, people tend to think more a predominantly white church that has more ethnicities or races or languages. But Enid, you are in a very multicultural church in New York. How does your church manage to minister to and to connect all of these elements of diversity? We have to be willing to evolve, to embrace the changing demographics in the community. And so my church was founded 70 years ago as God spoke to our founding pastor in the mountains of Bayamón, Puerto Rico, and told him to come to New York and plant a church amongst the burgeoning population of Puerto Rican immigrants in the community. And we were predominantly a Spanish-speaking church until the 1980s, where we saw that second and third generation Latinos really were becoming more actively engaged in their faith in English. And so we had to respond. We had to evolve. And many churches are kind of are in that place where they're trying to find the sweet spot between honoring the cultural heritage of the kind of diverse population of Hispanics. Again, there's 63 million Hispanics here in the U.S. 15 percent are Latino evangelicals. But again, you're talking 20 plus countries. You're talking different political and and theological perspectives. And so how do you find a common ground for all of that? And that's faith, really, because across all of that, the church is a safety net. It is a convening place for Hispanics of a variety of different generations. And so it's a place where you see intergenerational worship, unlike what you will see in other places. And so I see some Hispanic churches where they worship and they do simultaneous translation. And so you get English, you get Spanish. And so the entire multitude of generations of the family can sit and worship together. I've seen other churches such as my own, where we have a Spanish congregation and an English congregation in the same building, part of the same church and doing life together. But really the common denominator there is faith and really finding Jesus in that nexus point of community, of family, and of relationship that is so valuable to the Hispanic community. And it seems like that has a lot to offer to a lot of churches that are trying to figure out how do we reach all of these generations that exist, in some cases for the first time in history, four generations in one worship service. Scott, I'm wondering, I mean, these are beautiful opportunities. We find Jesus in the midst of it, but they don't come without challenges. Did your research speak to any of the challenges that the Hispanic church may be facing that might touch on some of the solutions that Enid has talked about? Well, I think, Pastor Enid, you're touching on an important element in reaching the next generation because it's something that I think all pastors are thinking about that in in their ministry. But I think the the typical Latino pastor is thinking about it even more, especially if they have a lot of first-generation parents in their church who are seeing their children not only get to the point where they need to make a decision about following Christ, but their children are also making a decision about 
how Hispanic do they want to live and how much of their identity is is built up in the tradition and, and their family's history. And so as we talked to Latino pastors in research we did last fall, they were talking a lot about reaching the next generation and about some of those challenges. And so to me, it's not that they have it all figured out, but the fact that they are giving extra attention to it, I think the entire church in North America needs to be taking notice and listening. And some of the things that they highlight is just the importance of those young people developing friendships with Christian peers at church. And it's amazing, you know, in a small church, you may not have many friends to choose from. And so it's amazing to see how many of the churches will do joint activities with another church in their community to foster that. Another important thing is, is those kids not being judged, but being accepted in a church setting. And that's so important for a church to create that kind of dynamic. You know, they underline the importance of parents who are Christians or are investing in those kids and the importance of the kids participating regularly in worship, as well as small group environments. But in another question that we asked, the majority of them underline something that I think a lot of churches might miss, and that is they indicate that they pray specifically for youth and young adults. And I think that's a great testimony to all pastors and church leaders to say, are we taking the time as a corporate body to pray for the next generation, pray for our own children and grandchildren, that they would come to Christ and would want to follow Christ and want to do so in the church community? And and so I think while this is a challenge for the, for the Latino church, I think it's one that they have shown leadership in that I think, again, the entire church in North America can learn from. Reverend Enid, it strikes me that what Scott said about intentional care for the next generation is one of the kind of ways that the Hispanic church is growing and developing. It reminds me of my great-grandmother when she would pray, Lord, bless my seed and the seed of my seed. Or, you know, my grandmother still today, when I spoke to her yesterday, she's praying over my kids and she'll remind me, you've been prayed for. We've been praying for you and for your children and for your children's children. How are some of those stories coming alive in your own experience, personally, or in your work with your church? We're seeing that multi-generational impact every single day. The generation that we have worshiping at our church today are the children, the grandchildren of the founders of our church. And so we all we acknowledge we stand on their shoulders. We're here victorious because of their prayers. And so we are a culture that is very much about honoring family and about relationship. And so when Scott talks about praying for the next generation, it's not that the next generation is outside in some other room. They are growing up in the church. I mean, we have kids sleeping on pews, you know, we have because this is part of the DNA of Latino life. And so the next generation is trying to figure out what that looks like in this season for their generation. Dr. Daniel Rodriguez coins it so well when he talks about living in the hyphen. And so we have a generation that is trying to figure out what their identity is. They're not Hispanic enough, if you will, for the older generation, because perhaps they're not Spanish dominant. They don't you know, follow some of the same cultural practices, but they're not American enough for you know the mainstream population. So they're kind of in this middle ground where they are figuring out what identity looks like for them and what faith 
looks like for them. So they have this strong foundation of the faith of their forefathers and foremothers, but are now thinking, what does that look like in this day and age? We have a generation that is very issue concerned. And so they want to know, what does the church have to say about climate justice? What does the church have to say about racism? What does the church have to say about gender equity and, and gender identity? And so it really is stretching us now, not only to continue with the status quo, but to really continue to evolve and say, how do we make space for this new generation to live out the faith in a meaningful way for them? And so it's, again, beautiful, messy opportunity, but evolution is part of it. Scott said prayer is part of it. I mean, my church still does the old school all night vigils where we are praying and fasting. And those are the practices that we are trying to pass down to the next generation while still making space for a fresh expression of faith in their way. I wonder what happens to the longevity, the growth, the sustainability of congregations that might be in changing neighborhoods. So I'm in Maryland, and it's not uncommon for a predominantly Black church to now find itself in a Hispanic community, or for a predominantly white church that's been there for 100 years to now recognize their neighbors don't speak English as their first language. For either of you, what advice would you give to churches who find themselves in changing communities or even in changing demographics themselves? I think the key there, Nicole, is really going to be to change our outreach strategy from trying to do ministry to that community to doing ministry with that community and really inviting them to the table as peers and partners in the transformation of our communities and neighborhoods. And so there was a time where we had, you know, Anglo churches that would develop a Spanish department if you will, and everything was relegated to that department and they had special outreach strategies, you know, that that team would implement. Now we need to really embrace a more holistic approach where there's common dialogue, where we are listening, where we are learning from one another, where we are lamenting those things that mutually impact our communities, but where we are journeying forward together. Because they're going to be your best advocates. They're going to be the credible messengers within the community if you find that meaningful, deep relational connection. There are many pastors that may be intimidated by just the language difference. And the sooner they can get to the point of what Enid is talking about of really saying, let's do ministry together rather than let's just give you a room or let's give you, you know, some financial support, the more effective it's going to be. And the more, the more I think it reflects the body of Christ. Kind of sounds like the kingdom of God. <laughs> it is the call for all of us. Is there anything in your research, Scott, or in your experience, Enid, that you think might be encouraging for people who may be part of churches that are dying and are looking for stories like these to encourage them? Well, as I mentioned, partnership is key, Nicole. And so really finding those vibrant churches in our community and finding ways that we can lock arms for the common good. I remember when COVID-19 hit New York City, we were in the ground zero of this outbreak and many of the nonprofit organizations that served the vulnerable members of our community closed down because of fears of, you know, you know, greater contamination. 
our church continued to serve the community. And our little church, I mean, distributed over one million pounds of food via home visits to seniors in our community. And that opened the door for partnerships, not only with other non-Hispanic churches in the neighborhood, but other nonprofit organizations, even Jewish leaders were coming to us and saying, hey, we want to lock arms with you. Partnership, I think, is going to be key as we redefine the future of faith together. I would also encourage patience. As a church begins to minister to Hispanics in their community, they need to acknowledge that there's often a lot of turnover. As people come in for work, sometimes they're also leaving for work, and they also have long work days and long work weeks. And so sometimes attendance cannot be quite as as frequent as you might want because of those work hours and also, as new work opportunities open up in other cities, you know, a key leader from, from that new fledgling ministry may have to move to another city. And so just, just having patience when you're thinking about church planting, patience when you're beginning to do outreach in the Hispanic community, I think is a, a, a key element to keep in mind. These are important elements when you think about partnership and patience and perseverance. This feels like This is the gospel. This is the ministry of sowing and reaping. It is not overnight, but if we are diligent, if we are faithful, God will bring forth the harvest. Thanks again, Pastor Enid, Scott, for being part of our conversation today. This is very encouraging as we think about the lifespan of the church and during this National Hispanic Heritage Awareness Month, hopefully some of our listeners might visit a Hispanic congregation near you to celebrate in community together. We'll be right back. Welcome back, and we are wrapping this week with one of my favorite segments of The Bulletin, a segment where CT's Daniel Silliman stops by to talk to us about what's weird in the world of religion in America. So, welcome back, Daniel Silliman. Hey, Mike. I want to tell you today about Jesus Christ in the phone book, or maybe we should say Christ, comma, Jesus. That's how he would have been listed. This is an unusual one. In the mid-1990s in Miami, a woman named Frances Gray figured out how to get the telephone company to list her name not as Gray, Francis, but Christ, Jesus. I don't know. I haven't been able to figure out how she did it. If she like had to pay somebody or she just like convinced the phone company that she was setting up the line for someone else whose name was Jesus Christ. But she did. She set it up. And throughout the mid-1990s, if you were in Miami and you looked in the phone book, there was Jesus Christ. She said she got a lot of calls. Most of them were jokes, pranks, people, you know, just wanting to have fun. But apparently a steady stream of them were also legitimately people who were in trouble, who wanted someone to pray for them, who wanted counseling. And she just decided Mm. that, like, the pranks and weirdos were worth it Mm. for the amount of ministry. So then I was thinking, surely this has happened before, right? I mean, it's not like phone books have been around that long, but more than 100 years. Like, there must have been other instances. And I found at least one other that I could verify. In the 1970s, in Albuquerque, there was a guy who'd studied to be a Catholic priest named James Leary. And he dropped out of seminary, stopped pursuing the priesthood, had a kind of... um, Pentecostal experience, an experience of the Holy Spirit, Mm. started hanging out with hippie Christians, Jesus people, and they had what they called a Christian crash pad where they would 
pick up hitchhikers and people in trouble, runaway kids, that kind of thing. And they also convinced the phone company to list them as Jesus Christ. And he said they got a lot of high people. That was his experience in the mid-70s in Albuquerque. Okay. But it just goes to show, I think, what evangelical historians, people who pay attention to weird stuff, and people who pay enough attention to the history of technology know, which is wherever there's some weird technology, there's someone using that technology to uh, talk about Jesus or dox him, as the case may be. What turned you on to the story? What made you curious about this? What was I looking up originally? I mean, <laughs> sometimes I just troll through old newspapers. There was an old newspaper okay. column about this. Uh, uh, one of these okay. columnists who like finds fun and interesting stories. But I'm pretty sure I was like looking up Jesus Christ in Miami in the 1990s for some other story and happened to right. find Francis Gray. found his phone number. Yeah, yeah, there he was. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can, the phone number is still available, even though like it's been long since disconnected. As far as I can okay. tell, Francis Gray retired the number in the early 2000s, okay. at which point she might have been in her mid to late 60s and maybe had done her work answering Jesus's calls for him. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, that's good. And that's weird. Thanks a lot, Daniel. There you go. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Lucky. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?